All right, this is the audio version. I thought I would add that because it's a long read and not all of you are that keen on reading that much. And just a warning, this is a post that you can't directly apply to fix your startup. This article aims to boost your general thinking. Um, and if you're not interested in that, then this might not be for you. Um, the, the, the article is not very visual, um, but there are some visuals. Um, so... I start out with a GIF where you see some chairs coming about. And I want you to look at that GIF and count the amount of chairs that you see. Because not every image is a chair. Just gut feel, chair and no chair. I also kick off this lecture with, with a lecture with this exercise. And people are a bit confused at first. However, everyone has an opinion on what is a chair and what is not. And more often than not, has the debate spark loose? Like last time in the suburb of Eindhoven, a young aspiring creative shouted, Come on, that's not a chair. That's a chair. My lap is a chair. Jesus. And the end of the exercise, I asked the class, like, Why do you think I did this exercise? And the common answers are everyone has a different idea of what a chair These are all valid answers. Um, I've done this lecture now with hundreds of students, and nobody ever reflected on the following thing. Why do you have such a strong feeling on what is a chair and what not? Somewhere in that creature that we are, we've got something that helps us to detect what a chair is, and all students so far have a chair detector, it seems. And that detector is what scientists call concepts. So what is a concept? From a scientific viewpoint, actually, we have a relatively mild understanding of how our mind works. From a philosophical point of view, it's even harder. I once tried reading philosophy of mind, and I can tell you, if you ever want to feel stupid, think of something like that. It's one of the most abstract things I've ever read. Everything in this section is, in this article, basically, is a way of explaining how we humans work. And by no means I'm trying to say this is how it actually works. I will leave that to the scientists on this matter. This is a little bit out of sight. My area of expertise, but I do find it interesting and relevant. I, the following I found to be helpful explanations. So a chair is a concept that lives in our mind. It's what psychologists believe. If you say... Even have a picture to prove it. Um, but that idea of a mountain, does that exist in a similar fashion as the mountain does? And here we get explicitly philosophical. And it's complicated for science because we can't measure or capture that idea of a mountain very well. And this already sounds pretty vague. I'm going to make it more concrete. Um, for clarity of thought, I like to think about concepts that people use, whether they exist or not. So, it's what, these concepts, we use them on a daily basis. We, they help us to understand the world. For instance, when you were thinking in the exercise GIF or showing a chair or not, you were using the concept chair that you have in your mind, but also...
F1 image, a couch fits better than a chair, and therefore we say it's a couch or a love seat, you name it. So how do we learn to recognize chairs? If you go back to the chair example, how many chairs have you seen in your life? If I ask my audience this, most guess a number in the 10,000s, maybe 50,000s. But mind you, every plane you have been on already has two or three hundred. So if you've been on 10 planes, it's already 3K. It's just the planes. If you ever wanted through a train to find a spot, that's probably another hundred. I take one train a week. That's at least 400 more chairs per week times 50. That's a lot of chairs. Right? If you've ever been to a sports stadium, that's another 50,000 just there. I think every human being around the age of 30 easily has seen one million instances of chairs. And every time we are exposed to a chair, we train our conception of what is a chair. I will unpack this. We are learning what chairs are as we go. And how does that learning process work? I will explain that to you using Kolb's experimental learning cycle. It's a simple cycle with four steps. And the first step starts with a concrete experience. So the first time we see a chair, assumably as a child, we are baffled. Kolb calls this the concrete experience as a trigger for learning. The experience in this case is taking in that new object by whatever senses that we have. Maybe it's seeing it, maybe it's feeling it, but we, we have an experience of that chair. The reflective observation is the second step. It happens almost instantly. It's a reflection on that experience. You're thinking and looking at that chair at the same time. And there's a person on it. You're processing that information, that experience in your body. After that, we have a third step. And it's called abstract conceptualization. So from that reflection, we are conceptualizing. And this is where concepts are born. That new object something one can sit on, right? So by seeing a chair, you're trying to understand that object. And the fact that we name it a chair, that's a language thing that's different, but let's assume it's a chair now. And that's the word that we use to refer to that thing. Um, and if you do a lot of these abstract conceptualization, that concept gets richer and richer. And because you have seen so many chairs, you have a pretty rich concept of what is a chair. From such an abstract concept, sometimes we do an active experiment. So if you're learning something new, as a child seeing a chair, and he sees somebody sitting on it, the child walks towards the chair and sits on it to validate the concept of a chair that is something you can sit on. And the experience, so the experimentation creates a new experience. The child can experience sitting on a chair. And then the cycle starts again because the child gets a new experience, reflects and conceptualizes. And it is in this way that that Kolb believes that we learn through experience. So this cycle is taught to take place every time we are learning things. And it combines feeling, watching, thinking and doing. And if you go through this cycle a lot, the abstract, conceptualization, abstract conceptualization phase has been doing a lot of work. Building the concept of the chair very deep. And after seeing millions of chairs, the reflection is probably not a very conscious process. But exposure to the millions of chairs feeds the abstract conceptualization. So again, that concept has been cemented in our brains due to the many exposures to it. And that's a very important aspect of this article. So if you get that, well done. So 
I'm trying to explain how we learn to recognize problems. And I've explained what is a concept and how we learn concepts. And we've learned that it happens by exposure to reflecting on and conceptualizing from experiences. We build concepts in our mind. So now we need to tackle the final question. How do we learn to recognize problems? So what is a problem to begin with? I often write about problems, but let's define it formally. Problems are subjective things. I see a problem as a label we give to a situation. A quick example. How many people 20 years ago told climate change was a... Since the start of the previous century, and humans had the data available. Even after being exposed to El Gore's and Inconvenient Truth in 2006, not everyone was swayed. <laughs> this is one year before the iPhone was released. That's a relatively short time. That's a funny thing, these problems. And the heating of the world was already there. We had this growing graph. The thing changing, besides an accelerating effect of the rising temperatures, is that more people are classifying the situation as a problem. So a problem is a situation that we, as humans say, this is problematic. So what is a situation? Well, a situation is such a vague word. Because what does it mean, a problematic situation? Let's define it. A situation is a set of circumstances that we observe. And depending on which problem we are talking about, the circumstances required to... I seem like a mouthful, but... As of today, when I was writing this, I was feeling tired with a lack of energy. And I see that as a problem. The color of the t-shirt I'm wearing was not important, even though it is part of me today. So defining the problem, you, de you define the circumstance that you need to define the problem. You decide that. Effort, another example is that climate change is a quite broad problem. Do you include CO2 stuff in your set of circumstances to classify it or the rising temperature or both? Or whatever works. There's no finite definition to a particular problem, and that's what makes it hard. There's one issue, though. A chair and a problem are not similar things. A chair is an object, and the other is an opinion about the situation. Even though what constitutes a chair and a problem are both subjective, a chair is probably more concrete than a problem. So now we get a little bit more fake. Maybe I lost you already, but this is my line of thought. So... A chair is a physical object. I can point to that object. Um, pointing to problems can be more difficult. Can you please point to climate change? You can point at concrete manifestations of the, of the problem of climate change, such as increasing wildfires. But that's not the full problem of climate change. Yuck. Yeah, this is quite a messy bit, right? This is why it's hard to, to do this thing, and this is why most people stay away from it, because it's very abstract and messy. So... Now I'm going to talk about identifying problems and subproblems. So what is important to know about problems is that they don't come alone. It's a negative assertion of a situation, but this implies that the observer imagines desired and preferred alternative situations. So a problem is a starting point of an investigation for a better situation than the current one. Problems are hard to recognize since they are extremely situation-dependent. A chair is always something one can sit on, with some vague constraints regardless of where you are. Problems on the other hand are unique to each situation, because each situation has a unique set of circumstances. If a problem is a set of circumstances that we classify as non-optimal, 
the recognition part goes twofold. We require ideas of a better situation and require ideas of what constitutes suboptimal circumstances. And this might sound vague, but let's imagine you're a dietitian and you're meeting someone who is obese or wants to lose weight. So you feel like there's a problem being obese and an idea of a better situation. That's one with less weight. However, that's like a summary of the situation. What causes this patient to be obese? That is a, how a problem inquiry starts. The dietitian will likely check the consumption patterns of the patient and will have a keen interest in the activities of the patient that the, the, he does to stay fit. So let's say the patient eats too much and doesn't have a very physically active lifestyle. We can classify those two as problems, right? But why? Well, we've been exposed to these problematic circumstances before. Most people know that you get fat if your daily calorie intake exceeds what you use and the because the excess calories need to go somewhere. Based on our prior knowledge of what are ideal situations, not being overweight, we are able to recognize this situation as problematic. So our prior knowledge helps us to identify perhaps two areas of inquiry, namely the activity of the patient and the consumption patterns. So the concepts of weight, physical activity, and calorie intake help us in classifying a situation as a problem. This is why training a doctor, a medical doctor, takes quite a long time. There is a theoretical study of all the problems, all the diseases actually. The diseases are the problems. Causes and mechanisms of these diseases it takes quite a lot of time, and therefore they have apprenticeships of doctors to recognize them in, in real life and to treat them in real life. And this is also why doctors tend to specialize at some point, because there's just too many things to understand. You, you need to specialize there. So why is it hard to recognize problems and innovation? Because the previous example with the dietitian builds on common knowledge of activity and calorie intake. But what happens if someone is obese and all existing knowledge doesn't explain the extra weight? Simply put, what if all of our Cinderella shoes or chairs don't fit? That's curious, because now we don't know where to look for explaining the suboptimal situation. This is what makes innovation hard, because we are trying to fix a problem that hasn't been fixed before, yet it hasn't been identified before. We don't know what the core mechanisms are that require attention in this situation. And now you are in this open, exploratory process that is non-linear and especially not for everyone. Some people like the more concrete situations. And this is why it's hard, because we don't have any fitting concept in that situation. You know what's interesting? They've done research on how we learn, and they compared experienced people to inexperienced professionals, like experienced experts, novice experts, researchers, this is called. This is what I just described is why inexperienced people make mistakes. A first-time founder, for example, tends to focus on their solution. That's a common mistake to make rather than talking to customers. Well, you might know this, um, but they are not able to recognize situations of problematic because they haven't gone through the cycle and they don't have the abstract concepts to recognize this situation as problematic. After failing to get traction, then the entrepreneurs are forced to reflect on what went wrong. That's a concrete experience and that will build a better conception of what... 
So scientists have done experiments where they've seen that experienced designers tend to spend more time in understanding the problem than inexperienced designers, arguably making them better at solving problems. Research also has shown that serial entrepreneurs have richer conceptions of opportunities. And this might sound vague, but if I say this follows, it matches what I'm trying to say here. Serial entrepreneurs have been exposed to more situations that contain opportunities and therefore have richer conceptions what type of situations and what set of circumstances might have opportunities. Did I lose you yet? So, I want to round up now. How do we learn to recognize problems? I've touched upon a lot of different things here. Maybe it's too much, you tell me. So, we learn to recognize problems by being exposed to many problems and understand their subproblems. Because through these reflective cycles, where we conceptualize based on our own experience, we build concepts of certain problematic situations and circumstances. Especially deep understanding of the underlying mechanisms that give cause to this problem, cause an even wider net in recognizing them. And for example, the calorie intake and the physical activity for the dietitian. Recognizing problems is essentially building new concepts for a situation by engaging directly in the situation. That's why problem interviews or observing your customer are important ways of research, because they give you concrete experiences to reflect on and conceptualize problems. This is how we learn problems, uh, to recognize problems. I hope this was clear, and if not, let me know. Do you want to read more about abstract concepts? Ah. Uh, I get that. But there's, there's two links at the bottom of the article, and you can vote on what I should write about next. Thanks for listening, and till next time. This was Jeroen Koele from Lima Product Market Fit Do It.